Does it feel exhausting having OCD? Yeah, it's like having another full-time job. Mm. There is no on-off button. You know, you mm. just think in OCD the whole time and it you do learn just to be able to think alongside your obsessing brain. So I kind of do sometimes wonder if I didn't have OCD, then, you know, where would my mind go and what would I be focused on and what would my passions be? Welcome to the Hurt to Healing podcast with me, Pandora Morris. I've been fighting an uphill battle with my mental health for many years, and it's only now that I've started to see some glimmers of light. As part of my own recovery, I've made it my mission to support as many of you as possible on your own healing journey by sharing conversations that are more honest and more raw than ever before. I'll be speaking to some wonderful people from all walks of life who will open up about their own invisible struggles in the hope that it will provide a bit of solace and comfort for some of you. The Hurt to Healing podcast is proud to partner with Shout, the UK's first free, confidential, 24-7 tech support service. So if you're struggling to cope and need mental health support, please text SHOUT, S-H-O-U-T, to 85258. Welcome to the very first episode of the Hurt to Healing podcast. I explained a little bit about myself in the introductory episode, but to cut it short, after 20 years of various different therapies, medication, panic attacks, compulsing, over-exercising, restrictive eating, and basically living inside an internal prison, I've reached a place where I'm starting to understand my condition and I finally found some coping mechanisms which I try really hard to implement each day. I wanted to start the podcast with a very special episode and an incredibly special person who has known me for many years. Annika Rice is a TV presenter, radio host, author and artist who's known me since I was a little girl. She's witnessed a lot of my journey and I thought there was no better way to begin the podcast than to have her to ask me a few questions so that you can all get to know me a little better and understand why I'm really doing this. I just think it's great that you're doing this because not only are you helping people who have the same illness, who are going through the same agonies that you go on a daily basis, but it's going to be just so helpful to the people trying to support those people, parents, carers, teachers. So I think trying to get into Pandora's head is a very good place to start. So I know some of these answers, but just explain to everyone, you know, when you first had this very first experience of anxiety... I think it was when I was about four, I was absolutely paranoid about security, mum and dad dying, friends not liking me, and just generally feeling just very anxious all the time. Wow, four's very young to feel those things, but also to remember those things. So obviously really penetrated your your mind, your subconscious. And how was it manifesting itself? What, what were you showing? A lot of checking, sort of switching on and off things, just these random voices in my head that would sort of say, go and touch that curtain or or you must check under that bed every night or you must go and check in that cupboard. Or It wasn't as ritualised at the beginning. Um, so it was quite, yeah, it was just And quite... were your parents picking up on this? No, not at all. So you were sort of being secretive as a very little girl. Oh, totally, yeah. The running is what I know you for because... Pandora running is a thing to behold, you know, the running, the swimming. And and the running started quite early on, didn't it? 
yeah, very early. Um, I always ran at school. And then by the age of sort of 12, 13, I was running every single day and multiple times a day. One time we sort of clocked up, I think it was around 20 miles probably a day. And then in sort of gaps, you'd need to get down and do some press ups. Yeah, I had this weird thing where everywhere that I went to that was a new place, I would have to go into a room and do 50 press ups. So whether it was like a loo or somewhere like a corner of a room. And I mean, it was out of control. And and getting dressed, just going to the beginning of the day, even getting dressed in the morning was agony for you, really. Yeah, I would have to get uh, sort of the right patterns in my head, uh, sort of sequences of people um, and do everything the right amount of times. And if it wasn't right, I would have to repeat sort of the task. So putting on a sock could take up to sort of 25 minutes. Wow. And what age are you now? By now, sort of 13, 14. And your parents are now on board? Yeah, absolutely. How did that happen the first time? At what what point did you all come together and address it as a family? I think it was probably when I went to secondary school and my mum recognised that there was a big problem. I'd had a sort of meltdown at my primary school, very depressed. I sort of couldn't get up in the morning. And then when I started at secondary school, it was sort of when the OCD really manifested itself and these rituals just became so lengthy and mum went to our local GP practice and she said, I've got this daughter with OCD and the GP just turned around and said, what's OCD? Wow. So a, a really frightening time for all of you as a family unit. But then the OCD became the eating disorder or do you count the eating disorder as part of the OCD how do you separate those two yeah it's a very it's a tricky one the two I think coexist and they feed off one another so I think I've learned to see them as separate conditions but you know I'm very aware that there's a lot of overlap yeah because again I have a memory of of having family meals with you and there was very much uh, your food and mm. then the food everyone else was eating. Even though we might be eating incredibly healthy food, you still had your own kit. <laughs> yeah, my own kit. Yeah, it was because I had to prepare everything. I had to know exactly what had gone into my food, even if I thought there was a chance, for example, that you had cut like the salad on a board where mm. you had also cut bread. You know, for me, bread was a sort of a bad food and therefore it had sort of contaminated the salad and... It was very, very particular how I would do things. And and there's this sort of paranoia around not having the right foods in the sort of prepared in the right way. So you've got all these rituals going on. You've got these exhausting eating rituals as well. Mm. And then it really started to mess with your health, didn't it? I mean, and with injuries you got from extensive running. Yeah, I got my first stress fracture when I was 14 which meant I couldn't run. Mm. And that was when the excessive swimming started. Mm. Which is what I really, when I think of you, I just think of watching you at the seaside, just swimming. Most people go out and have a quick swim and come back. You'd go really for hours, absolutely strong crawl all the way, as you say, with injuries. So what was going on at home at the time? Because it'd be so interesting for parents to know how your parents were dealing with this. Well, I think it was very, very fraught. I mean, you can imagine for my mum having this child who 
was clearly destroying her body and yet she yeah. was still trying to push it beyond its limits and I think for me it was a matter of you know life or death it literally my brain had gone into that mm. flight or fight mode unless I got my fix like a drug addict which you know was my exercise I felt like I couldn't function mm. and you I mean you did things like you went swimming in Cornwall and got hypothermia because mm. it was in the middle of winter yeah I was revising I remember I was revising for my A-levels and every morning I had to go for my swim and the sea was the only option and it was literally snowing outside and off I went and sure enough yeah I collapsed on the beach and um, the ambulance had to come and also you know bike rides in the middle of the night I, I feel for your parents as a parent myself did they try and lock you in the house in desperation your parents must have tried everything I guess yeah I mean I at one point my mum did she just locked the door of the house and she was like you are not leaving mm. I was completely out of control I mean I was literally trying to climb out the window um, and as you said I went out in the middle of the night to get my fix you know I would go on these bike rides and I remember just going up and down the same hill you know 20 30 times possibly um, with a fracture yeah yeah with a stress fracture in my leg yeah and nothing could stop me the extraordinary thing is throughout this illness you've still managed to somehow get through school and pass exams you know how was the time in your day for study or did that become a sort of OCD thing in itself yeah the revising the absolutely the, yeah the repetition mm. and funnily enough I was sort of always much better at that sort of you know rote learning it was sort of like you know I would literally copy the textbook out into my own written notes and mm. immaculate files sort of full of these color-coded notes yeah. but again it was obsessive oh god so many people will identify with this pandora you know you you got into university you went to university and that you know that's a big moment for you because you're leaving your home set up where your rituals are familiar to you you know mm. that's your home base isn't it you can do all your strange behaviors from home how did you cope when you first got into your halls of residence? It was a complete nightmare. I remember being given the key to this room. I'd arrived at, with a camping stove and a sort of a tiny little fridge because I knew that mm. the food was going to be a real issue. Mm. And um, my room became my prison. I mean, thinking back to it, it just sends shivers down my spine. It was just on this sort of long corridor, like very impersonal. And... I felt so alone, so alone. Did you make friends? I did, miraculously. Um, but it was sort of at arm's length. Everyone at university usually sort of has these shared experiences and they, you know, they have stories from the night before and I would overhear all this sort of like, oh, mate, did you, you know, did you mm. get wasted last night? And I was just always on my sort of little strict schedule and I would have to be in my bed by sort of midnight so I could get up the next morning to make my porridge to then go to the gym for a few hours mm. to then study mm. you know it was just I was like a robot oh Pandora and also the university you, were at, you had a year out in theory yeah didn't you that yeah. you could go abroad and study mm -hmm. so presumably you had to miss that yeah miss that and actually spent the year on crutches which was pretty miserable I remember it was snowing up in Edinburgh and just trying to get to my lectures on these crutches and they would just sort of like skate away from me as mm. I the whole thing was just a hideous nightmare. Hideous. And, and meanwhile, you are trying 
you're seeing cancers, you're trying different things, you're you're clutching at straws, your parents are frantically researching. Is it easy to find help out there? It's much harder than you would think, and especially for a condition like OCD. Anorexia and eating disorders are slightly, the path is, I'd say, more well-trodden. But for OCD, the treatment is, it has to be so invasive to make shifts when it gets to a certain level Mm. that actually it's not great, no, Mm. in my opinion, especially in the UK. Yeah. So your parents are just hitting brick walls, you Mm. know, absolute heartache, I presume. Mm. You're hitting brick walls, probably literally trying to climb up them. And yet you got through university and you managed to, you decided to become a lawyer. Mm. And you actually started your law conversion. Yeah. How do you look back on that? I just don't know how I got through it. But Mm. I was so determined from the age of eight, I think I decided that I was going to be a lawyer. That was like another should. And that was another box that I had to tick to be the sort of perfect person. And, you know, it was like I had to deserve my existence on this planet and I had to win it. And I had to become this qualified lawyer. And then suddenly I felt I was going to have this epiphany when in fact that was obviously far from the truth. Yeah. And then, of course, lockdown. Did things get worse for you during that time? Yeah, it was a really, really lonely, horrible time. And I just went into that self-destruct mode and the Mm. light just completely went out. So it got worse. You sort of went, is there such a thing as going backwards? When when you've got such an extreme condition, can it get any worse? Yeah, I know. Well, I thought I'd hit rock bottom when I was at the law firm and (laughs) that wasn't my rock bottom. I just want to take a quick moment to say a big thank you to my wonderful sponsor, Bowdoin. Bowdoin is a British brand that has championed uplifting, eclectic British style since it was founded 31 years ago. Perhaps it's time to add to your collection this autumn with some new knitwear, maybe with a modern twist such as a puff sleeve. I've just indulged in a new ultra soft cashmere, which I can honestly tell you I'll be living in this winter. But what I love most about the brand is that they've always championed women from a variety of different backgrounds and seek to inspire them to enjoy a life well lived, which is exactly what I'm aiming to do with my podcast. Head to Bowden.com to check out their new autumn collection or to their Instagram at Bowden underscore clothing. How have you managed um, with relationships? I mean, how's your relationship with your parents? Is it like you're all on this sort of project and you, all your energies go towards this sort of goal of somehow finding the elixir that's going to put you in a better place? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I think a lot of my um, issue has been around my codependent relationship with my mum. Mm. And so a lot of my recovery has been sort of a, a conscious separation from her. Yeah. But of course, you know, they're my parents. We're always going to be tied together by virtue of being family. But it's put a real strain on my relationship with my brother. I think he finds it very, very hard to accept that he has a sister who's ill and he can't see it. Is that part of the problem that people don't see it as an illness? Mm. So what do they see it as? 
They see it as something that... Condition sounds sort of different, doesn't it? Like a sort of skin complaint or something. Yeah, yeah. And, my, you know, even my my dad, who I love dearly, you know, he would say to me, come on, come on, Pandora. It's just a matter of determination. Mm. And I think that really sums up a lot of people's attitude towards mental illness. It's if you haven't suffered from a mental mm. illness yourself, you cannot fathom why someone can't just pull themselves together and snap out of it. Mm. And I get it. I really get it. But when it lives on inside you, it's like a second brain. Mm. And it whirs away constantly. You know, I I dream in OCD. I There's no getting away from it. As we're sitting here, are you thinking other thoughts? Yeah. What you must do next, what you should be doing now, the fact that we're sitting still for so long, is that a problem? Yeah, well, it's the starting new things, which I find a real challenge. So... My OCD manifests itself around avoidance of new things. And when I do do a new thing, my OCD wants me to do a whole load of compulsions, talk about the right people, imagine the right people, do the right exercise, eat the right foods, do things in the mm. right order, following it. So it feels like this overwhelming sort of litany of um, things that if I can, I'll avoid. And that's what happens when it gets really bad. So just starting this is proving to my OCD that actually this is something I really want to do and I'm not going to let the OCD interfere with that. So is that sort of why you've decided to do this podcast as part of um, hopefully some kind of progress? Yeah, I think for me, this is the first time that I'm really doing something I feel incredibly passionate about. Mm. And I feel that if I can use my experience to help anyone else, then it will give me such a sense of satisfaction and, you know, a feeling of mm. that my suffering has in some way helped someone mm. else. And if I could prevent anyone else from going through the sort of torture that I've been through, then it would be incredible. It is torture and you say that I've been through as if it's the past tense. No, I'm going but, through. <laughs> but you, but you, uh, do you see that you might... Pandora might get better or do you just see it as this is what you're living with and it's co about coping mechanisms? Oh gosh Annie it's so hard I really hope one day I have hope that I will experience more freedom and I will have moments of like spontaneity and mm. I was thinking this morning actually god I'd love to have feel that childlike excitement you know when it's like a Friday afternoon and you've got the weekend ahead of you or it's the school holidays and god I would long to sort of experience that feeling and recreate it again just that freedom and I haven't had that for so long mm. and I really hope one day it will be there but if not then I hope that I'll have glimpses of it and you know I'll have someone hopefully you know who I meet who will love me I love you Pandora <laughs> you're so sweet but you know my life isn't on the same trajectory as a lot of my friends yeah and mm. that's something I've had to accept and that's another thing my illness has made me you know I've had to make a lot of sacrifices for it and I don't want to make another sacrifice by not doing this podcast, mm. which is something I've wanted to do for years. Is it in any way, um, this is the wrong word, but a sort of selfish illness in that you haven't wanted to reach out to other people with the same illness mm. because it has mm. to be all about you? Yeah, it's a self-obsession, which we equate with like some, being something negative. I tend to, like, I don't know, veer away from using the word selfish because it just implies that you're making a conscious choice, but... I think I found real solace in listening to other people on podcasts and just 
I think it is such an incredible forum and it's so accessible for so many people that for me in my darkest times, if I can just hear that someone else has been through or is going through Mm. some semblance of what I'm going through, you know, you gain some kind of comfort in that. That's lovely. So there is a a band of Mm. fellow people going through this illness like you who will really benefit from hearing from you and hearing what you've got to say about it. I really hope so. And I think the more that we can open up the discussion around mental health and these sort of invisible conditions, I think it can only be beneficial. And I think although the dialogue around mental health has kind of opened up recently, there's still a lack of people who are sort of saying what they're actually going through in the present moment. And so one of my absolute bottom lines is that I'm not saying to people, I'm recovered or I'm out the other side because I'm really not. I'm still going through it and I'm, you know, maybe a quarter of the way through where, Mm. you know, I hopefully will get to. But when is the right time to do anything? And if Mm. I wait and I wait and I wait and it's like, that's the other thing with mental illness. It's like, oh, well, tomorrow I'll make the change or tomorrow I'll do this. Mm. And actually, you've got to start doing it now because As we know, we only have the present. We don't Mm. have the future and the past is gone. So on a day-to-day basis um, now, what are your coping mechanisms? What are you doing? So I try to stick to quite a strict daily schedule. Obviously, exercise is still like a crucial part of my daily schedule. And I'm trying consciously to reduce that and get it down to sort of a sensible amount. I also, I have a mentor, um, which has really, really helped. I still carry on with my therapy once a week and I find writing can be incredibly helpful actually just setting myself little goals whether that's cutting down on something or starting something new so for example today this is a huge exposure for me so what we call in OCD exposure work so basically facing the bully and doing exactly the opposite to what the bully wants so I'm consciously always trying to do that so it's I kind of try to describe it when my brain wants to go left I have to go right Mm. and if you imagine it's like having a tug of war with something and Mm. it's like consciously trying to let go of the rope and just let it go like you're not tussling with it Mm. I really think that the love and support of friends is crucial I have a very lovely network of friends who know about my struggles and who I can you know offload on occasionally and it's just really I'm not saying that I meditate or I'm some kind of guru who does mindfulness-based stuff because I often find that actually my mind's so busy that Mm. I can't switch off but I do find that the more that I implement this tactic of sitting in that anxious messy state and doing exactly what my OCD doesn't want me to do the more that it just loosens its grip a bit. So you'd encourage people get to get in touch with you and also what message would you have because there'll be a lot of people listening who are parents or aunts or uncles or concerned friends who are watching their daughter, their son go through this. How can they be better at supporting you? I think a lot of it is um, open lines of communication and support and I think anyone who's suffering from a mental illness is lacking in self-love and self-compassion. So I think the worst thing people can do is to get angry and frustrated, which is an inevitable reaction. But I think one thing we need to focus on is sort of helping people build that self-compassion. And if I can do 
anything to help that or just kind of chivvy them along, then that would be great. Mm. And I also think the more knowledge people have around what there is out there to help them, which again is what we're going to do with this podcast, is interviewing interesting professionals and people who are practicing different forms of therapy because there is a lot out there Mm. and people sort of throw around these acronyms like CBT and EXRP and NLP and actually I want to really deconstruct those methods of therapy and to try and teach people how they can maybe help in different ways because having been sort of you know on this treadmill for a long long time I've definitely done the rounds and I sat in a Mm. lot of kind of rooms with different practitioners and um, I would really love to try and educate people more about how they can help themselves. Does it feel exhausting having OCD? Yeah, it's like having another full-time job. Mm. There is no on-off button. You know, you mm. just think in OCD the whole time and it you do learn just to be able to think alongside your obsessing brain. So I kind of do sometimes wonder if I didn't have OCD then you know, where would my mind go and what would I be focused on and what would my passions be? Mm. But obviously the OCD has dictated so much of my life thus far, Mm. Mm. um, except for this. And this is why this podcast for me is such a a revelation and such a a sign of my recovery and my step towards, Mm. you know, being the person that I want to be rather than being kind of ruled by this dictator in my head. Yeah, get rid of that dictator in your head. If this is the first step towards that, well, I just wish you so much luck. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hurt to Healing podcast. I'd love for you to subscribe to the show or to follow me on our Hurt to Healing Instagram at Hurt to Healing Pod. You might also have a friend or family member that you think might benefit from hearing this conversation. So please spread the word. Hurt to Healing has partnered with Brown Advisory to bring you this podcast. Brown Advisory, a global investment management firm, is passionate about raising awareness of mental health challenges in order to help people thrive in an ever-changing world. A big thank you to Brown Advisory for supporting my mission.